Amazon is offering all Prime customers a healthcare membership for $9 a month. The scariest thing about AI is its ability to create fake content that is indistinguishable from real content. And the US's top consumer finance regulator sets its sights on big tech oversight. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Hey, Venture Daily listener. Did you know we have a newsletter too? You can read our stories every morning now. Find the link in the episode description to sign up right now. It takes 10 seconds. The newsletter is great for when you only have a few minutes to catch up on the news or when you'd prefer to read instead of listen. And if you know anyone who's interested in staying informed about venture capital, tech, and or business news, please share the newsletter with them too. We really appreciate your support. Now to today's news. Do you have an Amazon Prime account? If you do, you now have access to an annual membership to a healthcare plan. For $9 a month or $99 per year, Amazon is offering all Prime customers a membership to One Medical, a primary care company that provides everyday healthcare and helps members find their doctor. The company was recently acquired by Amazon for $3.9 billion. However, don't expect your One Medical membership to be an all-inclusive healthcare package. It provides patients access to some virtual care services and to in-person visits at clinics across the U.S., but those visits require additional insurance plans or out-of-pocket payments. The perk you get with Prime is a nice price cut, though. It's half of what the membership usually costs at $199 per year. This isn't Amazon's first attempt at breaking into the healthcare industry. In the past, the companies rolled out businesses like Amazon Comprehend Medical, a health data extraction tool, and acquired an online pharmacy company called PillPack. Amazon also had a failed joint venture with Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan Chase that lasted only three years and had Amazon Care, a medical care program that shut down last year. Amazon had to lay off about 80 employees in its pharmacy unit. When the tech company acquired One Medical, some saw it as a move that would allow Amazon to reach a bigger goal, eventually building an expansive healthcare offering to compete with traditional primary care and employ medical plans. Andy Jassy, Amazon's CEO, has said that healthcare could become one of the pillars of Amazon's business. To discuss the new affordable healthcare offering, I spoke with Brian O'Malley. Uh, hi, this is Brian O'Malley. I'm a managing partner with Foreigner Ventures. Brian, when Amazon purchased One Medical, some saw it as a move toward a bigger aspiration to eventually build an expansive healthcare offering, one that could even someday compete with traditional primary care and employ medical plans. Do you think Amazon's offer of a $99 annual pass to One Medical for all Prime customers is a step towards this ultimate goal? Yeah, absolutely. When, when Amazon made that purchase, it was a very clever one to get access to uh, not just 20% of the U.S. GDP that falls into healthcare, but a category where there's a large level of consumer dissatisfaction with the services that are available to them, as well as the way the whole ecosystem works. So if you think about it right now, the person who's actually the customer, the organization who's actually the customer, is really the payer, which is the intersection of a, you, you know, like a, you know, Blue Cross and your employer. And then you on the other end as the patient are really just left to fend for, for yourself. So Amazon making One Medical a little bit more accessible to the broader population, wrapping in with Prime drives awareness. And that's a step in, the, in, I think, the right direction for them to be able to provide more services to uh, the base that they're already working with. A One Medical membership is not an all-inclusive healthcare package. It provides patients access to some virtual care services and to in-person visits at clinics across the U.S. But those visits require additional insurance plans or out-of-pocket payments. Do you think the One Medical membership is enticing enough to Prime users to pay $99 a year for it? It's enticing enough to start the conversation. So I think traditionally, One Medical, if you had the, the, you know, the right offers first year, it was maybe 50% more than that. So some of this might be the $99 a year. Some of it might be $9 a month. 
I think the broader opportunity here is for them to be able to put this in front of people, pitch it as a compelling offer, and drive awareness in a category where an increasing amount of people don't even have a primary fare relationship. Uh, and this is a starting point of that. So Amazon uh, isn't including all the services. I don't think people expect all the services, but it's a way to get in the door. And then once that relationship is established, there's more problems they can solve for consumers, as well as there's you know, more ways that they can charge for those solutions. Last question, Brian. Amazon is fighting an uphill battle to break into the healthcare provider industry. Previous attempts by the company to establish healthcare efforts have failed. Do you think Amazon will find success in breaking through this time through its partnership with One Medical? I think this time is different. We saw this with Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods, where actually having a brick and mortar presence uh, really changed the game for them when it came to groceries. And not only did it change the game for them, it changed the game for the broader industry. If you think about what happened with Instacart around that time, that really opened the door for them to have other partnerships uh, with other grocery stores that were maybe harder to achieve early on. And so I think this is not only changing for Amazon, but it does open the door for other technology companies to team up with other health providers. And so when we think about this, having that offline presence, uh, having the ability to get deeper into your data has both benefits as well as challenges, uh, but it enables them to have a broader healthcare offering. And potentially we might even see them get into the insurance game as well as they have uh, you know, better knowledge around consumers. So. We think that it's a step that uh, is different from before. Um, there's still a lot of questions around the end of the day whether people with their medical relationship uh, really want it to be with an ambiguous entity versus with an individual provider who has a chance to get to know them a little bit better. We've put some work out around this concept of a digitally native franchise, which we think can uh, extend into the healthcare ecosystem. So some of these more commodity services, especially around what's happening in pharmacy, uh, Amazon is a great provider for that. They obviously did the pill pack acquisition earlier. Um, and so that tied together with one medical open some doors, but I'm not sure it replaces all of what consumers need when it comes to having a trusted medical relationship. That was Brian O'Malley, managing partner at Forerunner Ventures. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for joining the show, Brian. I appreciate you guys having me. 99% and 99.9% of the internet's content will be AI-generated before 2030, at least according to Timothy Schaup at the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies, who says it could happen as soon as 2025. And OpenAI is reported to be working on AI technology that will make creating deepfake content unbelievably easy. Following private tests, a leading AI architect told Axios' Jim Vandehei and Mike Allen that the world's best architects, quote, no longer can distinguish fake from real, which they never thought would be possible so soon. Unquote. This new tech from OpenAI will be available to everyone, including malicious actors, early next year. As the 2024 election approaches, fears of the spread of misinformation are growing rapidly. As AI tools improve, so too do opportunities for bad actors to use the tools to interfere with elections. And these aren't just some hackers in the shadows of a basement. Foreign governments like Russia have already demonstrated the willingness and capability to influence elections through the spread of misinformation on the internet. To dive into the threat Gen AI tech presents to the spread of misinformation, I spoke with Jake Heller. Hey there, uh, my name is Jake. I am the co-founder and CEO of Case Text, a company that was recently acquired by Thomson Reuters. Jake, some estimates say that even by 2025, 90% of all online content could be generated by AI. Does that scare you? Yeah, it really doesn't. Uh, assuming it's correct, which it may or may not be, uh, I think the way we would get to a place where so much content is generated online 
uh, via you know generative AI or large language models is because that content's actually pretty good. Uh, it's what people want to read or see or engage with. And so I think that if, if that were to happen, the most likely reason for that to happen in the first place is because uh, people prefer it or it's easier to create and people still want to engage with it. And content creators, generally speaking, whether we're talking about a podcast we're on right now, um, content marketers, or people writing books, uh, they want to make stuff that people actually read. And so if we're there, it's because uh, it's engaging and interesting and well done. So it doesn't, doesn't totally scare me. No. Do social media companies have a responsibility to fly content that is AI generated so users can know when they're looking at a fake image or video? You know, I think that's really interesting. I don't know if they have a responsibility to flag uh, AI generated images, video or text, but uh, I do think that we need to have some way of policing things that are actually real, which is about to get a little harder, right? Because AI video, AI text, uh, AI imagery is becoming increasingly indistinguishable from, you know, from real stuff. So like, say somebody puts up a video of uh, something kind of funny or creative or interesting that's AI generated. I don't think the social media company has a responsibility for saying like, hey, by the way, this wasn't created by a human. This is created by um, an AI because there's no like question of truth or fact that's being distributed. But if they put up an image or a video, whether generated by AI or whether it's like well photoshopped by a person, um, I do think that there's a lot we, we can and should do to prevent the spread of, of misinformation, which again is like an un- unenviable task because how do you even know something's real or not um, given how how good uh, these AI models are getting? So I think that, I think, I think in, for sort of the things a problem that pre-existed AI, it's just going to get a lot easier to create compelling fake stuff um, you know, with AI. Maybe one small thing about this is during, during this current um, conflict uh, between Israel and, and Palestine and Gaza, there's a lot of AI imagery floating around that people are pretty quick to say, like, hey, that guy has six fingers. <laughs> or, you know, uh, that's not a real place on any map. Uh, this is like a fictionally created place. So, you know, we're able to today with just looking at it know it's not real. But again, the next conflict that happens, um, or maybe even later in this conflict, but just three or six or nine months later, it's not going to be so easy to pick out, you know, right from wrong. Are there ways for content moderators to detect when an image or video has been AI generated? And if not, do you think bots should be required to add a digital watermark to anything they create? I don't know. Um, I think my answer is probably no, because what's going to happen is that as these models become open source and more widely used, is that real bad actors will just avoid using the services that play by the rules and use the services that don't play by the rules or, or kind of spin up their own model. Um, so I think you get like kind of a false sense of security if some folks are adding watermarks, but the bad actors aren't. And in fact, the ones who are you know, state actors or um, really well-organized or intelligent folks will avoid, you know, successfully, I think, detection, if that's what we're relying on to figure out fact from fiction. That leads to my last question, Jake. Do you think open source large language models, which are much more susceptible to enabling bad actors, pose too big of a threat? You know, I I don't think so, in part because the stuff created by big labs like OpenAI and Google and Cohere and Anthropic and so on, 
I think for a long time are going to be uh, quite a few steps ahead of our uh, open source large language models. I would love it for Worth if we had really fantastic open source large language models. It would empower a lot of people to create a lot of stuff, including us, that would be cheaper and faster and better. Um, but the reality is that creating these large language models uh, is incredibly difficult, very expensive. I think it will stay that way for a long time. And as a result, uh, you know, I think that, that it's the, the really powerful stuff will be in two places with the big labs, but also with, you know, state actors. And I think that's like the scariest one. What happens when China or Iran or you know, other large countries that may have interests that are adverse to us invest in their own versions of this um and again they, they won't be regulated by our regulations um and they have the resources and incentive to create things that are really good i think that's a little more scarier to me than the open source models that are floating around that was jake heller ceo of case text jake always a pleasure having you on thanks so much for taking the time thanks for having me On Tuesday, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau issued a proposal that would give it new powers to oversee tech companies like Apple and Google and no longer just banks. The top consumer finance regulator in the U.S. argues that big tech companies that offer banking and wallet technology should be more scrutinized. The proposal outlines protocol that will mirror the regulatory scrutiny banks and credit unions are currently subject to, and its goal is to extend U.S. consumer protection laws onto companies like Apple and Google that have millions of users transferring money and making payments on a daily basis. To be subject to the Bureau's new rules, companies must be above a 5 million customer transaction a year threshold. Big names that qualify include Apple, Google, Cash App, and Venmo. According to the CFPB, there are 17 companies that qualify, and those 17 make up almost 90% market share. The CFPB director, Rohit Chopra, is fearful of the reach and strength these non-bank tech companies have on the financial system, and believes that the U.S. is, quote, lurching toward a consolidated market structure like the one that has emerged in China, that blurs the lines between payments and commerce, increase the incentives for excessive surveillance, and even financial censorship. The CFPB believes that having banks and non-banks adhering to the same rules would, quote, promote fair competition between the two industries. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.